Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. The, the main point uh, that I want to make um, this morning is some, some thoughts about both form and content on Pope Francis's method, and I'll refer to him as Francis throughout the talk. Um, as you probably know, my original title was the Jesuitical hermeneutic of uh, Pope Francis, and uh, right now um, I'm going to sort of change it to the Jesuit, uh, uh, the hermeneutic of Pope Francis, but I meant Jesuitical uh, in, in that clever way, um, because I don't think that Jesuitical means only pertaining to or of the Society of Jesus or the Jesuits, though I certainly mean it in that way. Uh, Pope Francis does belong to the Society, and he is very much a man of the Society of Jesus. I also mean, you know, mean it in that way that you know, the, the, the Jesuits were very fond of using case studies, and sometimes that evolved into casuistry, and just pulling right up to the bloody edge, I mean, right to the line. And of course, that gave them that reputation for being sort of clever. Now, I don't mean uh, Jesuitical in the pejorative sense, but I do mean that Pope Francis does have a little bit of that kind of pushing it right up to the line in him, but he has a reason for it. And uh, the reason he has for it, uh, I hope to elucidate, uh, is grounded in four areas of the Society of Jesus. More on that in a moment. Before I begin, though, I think it's really important to, to talk about the form as well as the content of Pope Francis's encyclical letters. And the reason is, is because a Pope Francis encyclical is not like a Pope Benedict or a St. John Paul II encyclical, a very different kind of writing. This is not logical procession of principles. This is not a clear elucidation of a moral doctrine. Pope Francis's encyclicals, as I will try to make uh, clear, those encyclicals are really what I'm going to call in a fourfold format, uh, very close to what I might call a, uh, a Jesus hermeneutic, uh, much closer to maybe a John the Baptist hermeneutic, an Isaiah hermeneutic, a prophetic hermeneutic in many ways, but, but it's oh with a Jesuit overtone and undertone for sure. The point, though, is Pope Francis kind of has a fourfold method in these encyclical letters. And I'm including in encyclical letters, right, uh, like post-synodal instructions like uh, uh, Amoris Laetitia and, and, and uh, letters like that. So what we want to take a look at, though, is to recognize how he works. He starts with edification, building up, moving into the glory of God kind of hooking people in, you know, to uh, uh, God's glory manifest in people, in history, in nature, wherever it may be. The second phase, as I'll try to make clear uh, in a second, is a challenge, a prophetic challenge, almost a stinging challenge to try and get people to think. The third part of just about every encyclical letter is an invitation. It's an invitation to have people 
who are not generally part of what I'm going to call the, uh, the, the Catholic uh, convinced, to have them come in. These would be people who are alien, <clears throat> excuse me, alienated from the church, people who uh, may have in, in, in some sense uh, written the church off, um, you know, and we know there are plenty of academics, at least I've been in the academic business for a long time, and uh, might have written off the, uh, uh, the church as, an, oh, this anachronistic institution that doesn't care about social theory, doesn't care about the environment, doesn't care about science. We know this is completely false, but they don't know that. And so he's trying to get people to take a look at us in a different way before they set up the straw man, before they write us off, to try and extend an invitation. So it moves then from edification to challenge to invitation, and then finally to call and resolution. And I would submit that this is a very different kind of encyclical method than anything right, that previous popes have done. I mean, I, I myself see a lot of this in St. John Paul II. Um, and, and certainly in his encyclicals about the family uh, and, and uh, other uh, encyclicals. But, um, you know, it's, it's a different form, and it's manifestly a different form. So maybe I just start off with a few kind of rhetorical questions, and then we can kind of uh, address, you know, what's going on there, and, and then in terms of form, the form of Benedict's encyclicals, and then we can get into the content. Why did he choose the encyclical letters that he chose? Why these particular contents? Why address it to these particular groups that he's inviting uh, into, as it were, a dialogue with the church that they may have previously written off? Um, first of all, some questions. When, for example, in Amoris Laetitia, when uh, Pope Francis is just pushing the whole element of, of pastoral discretion, personal conscience, is really pushing it to the line of doctrine, right? Uh, pushing it to the line of the discipline of the church for nearly 2,000 years, when he's pushing it right there, almost to the point where you'd think, is he going to say that people you know, uh, have, um, uh, who have been uh, uh, divorced and, and remarried can actually uh, you know, fully participate in Holy Communion? Uh, is, are we going to such an extent of the internal form that we're, we're almost uh, de facto allowing it? What's he doing here? Is he doing that? Or is he doing something else? Or is he doing something more? What's he doing? Just a question. Uh, again, when we see in Laudato Si, we see that Pope Francis is quoting scientists that, like, some of them are overt atheists, and some of them are uh, certainly overt ag agnostics. Um, and and you, you sort of look at this and, and you go, my gosh, you know, why is he quoting those experts? How about a few of our experts? Or you, you might say to yourself, you know, well, wait a minute. Why are we getting down into the weeds of practical judgments? I mean, I mean, these are prudential judgments, practical judgments on every level. I mean, how much you use your, your, your air conditioner and, and so forth. Why? 
Why is he doing this? Is, is he doing it just straight on, prima facie, on the face of it? Is this what he's really concerned about? Or, or is there something more or, or something else? Uh, obviously, I'm going to say there's something more and there's something else. But I mean, <clears throat> the, the, the key point, um, you know, master of the rhetorical question, as the Jesuits are. <laughs> Uh, the, the third area that's, you know, really, I think, important is he's made some incisive critiques. I mean, I don't have to tell anybody, but uh, in uh, Evangelii Gaudium, right, the critique of capitalism has disturbed a lot of people, you know. And, I mean, it's, it's like, uh, are you kidding? You know, capitalism in the United States really isn't like this. I mean, I, I don't know what your experience of capitalism is like, but that's not my experience of capitalism. Why, why are you saying this that, that this way? Do you really mean the critique in this incisive a form in this way? Or is there something more or, or something else? And, and what I'm going to contend, as I said, is something more and something else. There's something else going. I think, yes, prima facie, you can sort of on the face of it, you can say, right, that, that, uh, that uh, he means what he says, but I would uh, adjure you not to view his writing as a jurist writing, not to view his writing as a theologian who is writing, not to view his writing as a kind of scientific theologian or even, you know, a, a philosophically scientific theologian but to view it more as a pro prophetic call, a prophetic challenge that is, uh, you know, up to the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, I'll have to explain that in great detail in a moment. But for the time being, there's a different interpretive key, a different hermeneutic that we have to use in reading a Pope Francis encyclical than when reading a Pope Benedict or a, a Pope uh, uh, St. John Paul uh, encyclical, etc. What do, is the general uh, interpretation that, that we can use? Uh, with respect to the critiques, like the critique of capitalism, and with respect to going right to the edge of doctrine, where you just think, one more little teeny step and you're over the line, baby. You know, I mean, you're just, you're just right there, right? When you get right down to that, you know, why is he pushing to the edge? What about these critiques? I would just say, here are some things that he's going after prophetically. Number one, what is broken that very few people are paying attention to. I'm telling you, or there's an incisive critique, or there's pushing it to the edge, he's pointing out prophetically, something's broken and people aren't paying attention to it. I'm going to sting you, and you're going to pay attention to it. You can't help it. Second question, who is broken? and nobody is paying attention to them? Or what group is broken that very few people are paying attention to? Third question, what is being ignored that Jesus Christ would not ignore? Third question, what is ignored that Jesus Christ would not ignore? And finally, fourth question, who is ignored that Jesus Christ would not ignore. 
So these are four questions, and I think these four questions, remember, Pope Francis has a pastoral mind. He's not operating out of, a, of what I'm going to call the, a theologian mentation, a philosophical mentation, a scientific mentation, a moral development, a moral doctrinal development mentation. He's working out of a very pastoral mentation, which I think, you know, that, that's kind of a mental attitude of Elton that he's kind of utilizing to, to, uh, to bring his particular brand of the papacy, of papal leadership uh, to the world. So that's with respect to the critiques and going to the edge. What about the strange get into the weeds things, uh, like we see in Laudato Si, What's that about? What's he doing there? And I think uh, what you're going to find is when he's going down and quoting scientists <coughs> that I would never quote, oh, thank you, in an apologetics volume, or uh, going into, for example, uh, thank you, um, you know, um, people um, or, or issues that are uh, very, very, thank you. Uh, issues that are very, very, um, um, uh, you know, in the weeds, you know, how often we use our air conditioners. I'm going to suggest that those are invitations. So one thing is about challenges, right? Those are the critiques, and those are going to the edge. The other things are invitations. When you quote a scientist that, of course, we may not quote, a scientist who might be an atheist, I think this is a pure and simple outreach to a group of people who are saying, he's quoting one of our people. Maybe the church really does care about this issue from our perspective. Maybe the church is listening to this perspective and of course, they're quoting one of ours. I mean, that's a huge deal to a person who feels like, well, they don't care about us. They're, they're an anachronistic institution. They don't care about the environment. Of course, none of these things are true, none of them. But they think it's true because they've already set up the straw man in their mind and they're already gonna shoot the straw man down until you quote somebody from their camp, at which point it's really hard to mow down their own guy as a straw man. I'm telling you, there's a genius to what Pope Francis does. You talk about the air conditioner issue and you go, what? I mean, this is a doctrinal statement and you're the air conditioning? Are you kidding me? But this is of concern. To, and there, some people are going to look at that and go, he cares about the air conditioner issue. That's one of our issues. That's the carbon blueprint. This is something we care about. And what he is doing is a very simple course of rhetoric we find in Aristotle. You want to appeal to somebody? <clears throat> Quote their guy. Quote their issue. Bring them in. Because it's really hard to just write off a group that's already acknowledged that your person, be it an agnostic or an atheist, be it air conditioning, that matters. It's in the encyclical. You can't do it anymore. It's an open-ended invitation. <clears throat> the Jesuits call it 
going in our uh, going in their door so that they will come out ours it's called in formal language enculturation by invitation enculturation by invitation so the form that i'm trying to suggest um, is that uh, this is a pastoral form it's an invitatory form it invites people uh, into itself it's a challenging prophetic form that is trying to bring up questions things that we might not have a comfort level with or frankly may very probably not be on our radar screen, certainly not on my radar screen most of the time. And uh, also that in it all, there is a call and a resolution. So look for this kind of format uh, as you're kind of reading the, the, the form of the encyclicals. Starting off with edification. That means reveling in the glory of God, manifest in the church, manifest in history, manifest in nature, manifest in people, manifest in the poor, right? The glory of God, edification, and building up the church, and, and kind of that starting off in that very positive note, the prophetic stinging challenge that comes, quoting people and critiquing people that are going to bring a whole new group into the conversation. I'm going to call that the invitation. And finally, a call for, to action, a call for people to do something about it, to make a difference, and, and boom, leaving it. Should you read Pope Francis's encyclicals um, as a doctrinal statement? When he is quoting the principles of what's called the church's social teaching, it is ordinary magisterium, unquestionably, and we should take it as magisterium. However, when he's making all kinds of suggestions about the how, including the air conditioning, including the critique of capitalism, et cetera, et cetera, when you see the hows, these things are classified in a different category. They're not magisterium. They are prudential judgments. And prudential judgments are arguable. Prudential judgments, who we want to take seriously, <clears throat> a prudential judgment that the Pope has made. Do you have to take it as doctrine? You most certainly do not. Can you question it? You most certainly can. Can you get another expert in the scientific world to confute what was said in this? Yes, you may. Is this perfectly legitimate theological, or, or I should say pastoral dialogue in, in, in Francis's eyes? Yes, it is. What he wants, though, for us in the encyclical, the reason for mentioning all these things is he wants for us to take the challenge seriously. And he also wants people outside the church who have formerly been alienated, he wants them to take the invitation seriously. Obviously, Pope Francis cannot stand up and give the talk I'm giving. Of course, he can't say to the people, hey, the reason I'm quoting your scientists is because I'd love to invite you to conversion to come out our door. He's never going to do that, obviously, right? You know, Jesuits never tell the secrets of their methods anyway, but uh, this one is doing a grandiose tattletale job. But uh, the, the most important thing, though, <clears throat> to, to, to remember is, is that I think this is what he's up to. 
I think it's a huge mistake to apply a different hermeneutic. Uh, I mean, I love Pope Benedict's encyclicals. He writes like I think. You know, I mean, this is like, keep developing that theme, logic, logic, logic. I love it. But that's not Pope Francis. If I, if I want that from Pope Francis, I'm going to be a very frustrated man. Okay, so uh, let's, uh, moving then from form now uh, to, to content. Because it's a curious set of themes uh, that he's picked, right? Uh, you know, curious things. You might think, oh, maybe he's just a really political guy. That's why he picked the themes he picked. That explains uh, cap the, his critique of capitalism. He's, he's, he's leaning left. He's leaning socialist. You, you could say that, but I don't think that's true. I, I think there's much, much deeper reason. You could say, well, he's, he's interested in the environment. You know, he's, he's kind of leaning. Uh, you know, soft on the on on the environment. You know, you could say that, and probably true. Uh, but I think there's a whole different modus operandi, etc. So, <clears throat> how did he come to these themes? <clears throat> Why did he pick them as the most important themes? Let's move then to the content. Who is Francis, and how was he shaped? <clears throat> You'll see uh, some concentric circles here on the diagram. And I'm just going to start from that inner circle uh, there. And I'm going to say that the foundation that uh, Francis started from is <clears throat> what I'm going to call spiritual experience and the spiritual exercises. Spiritual experience and the spiritual exercises. This is going to be such a deep foundation for Pope Francis, a deep foundation that it's going to make everything that he does later exceedingly Christocentric and exceedingly mercy-oriented. So this foundation that he's going to have that starts really when he's 17, probably started when he was younger as a child, but at 17, we'll talk about his uh, spiritual experience and how it's shaped through the spiritual exercises, you will see that he cannot help himself. Everything is going to be about how would Jesus do it? How would the one I love do it? How would the one who loves me do it? So we'll see in a moment, we'll call this the spiritual experience and the spiritual exercises, this is going to be a foundation based on the, his interpersonal love of Jesus and Jesus' love for him that makes him want to imitate Jesus and to constantly ask the question, how would the Lord who loves me and whom I love do it? Number two, the second thing that informs um, Pope Francis is what St. Ignatius Loyola would have called the magus with a definite article. And uh, when you say, a magus, as you know in Latin, means more. But when you put a definite article in front of it, when you say the magus, right, that means the even more, the going to the edge, the pushing things as far as you can push it. I mean, to the end of the world, if you have to. The St. Francis Xavier kind of, I'm going to, uh, you know, Ignatius says, well, go to India, then Japan, then China, you know, call me, uh, you know, call me. Yeah, write a letter when you get a chance, you know. Okay, 
I'll, I'll do it. And that's the majus, right? The, the even more. The, and, and the best way of translating it in our language is, is like the greatest universal need. And, and uh, I'll just put it, uh, you know, in, in a different sense. Um, it's very close to our motto, ad maiorum dei gloriam. So, uh, you know, to the greater glory of God. So this, uh, in, in a sense, uh, Pope Francis is a man of the Majus, and we'll explain that in, in just a moment. But that is the end. That's where he's going. That's the telos. That's the objective. That's where that heart of his grounded in Christ's love for him and his love for, for Christ, to imitate Christ. It's going all the way to the even more. It's go, he's going to do the work of eight men and love it. I mean, that's what he wants. That's what Ignatius wants. That's what he's going to be about, and we'll talk about it. There's a third uh, thing that's really... Pope Francis has a particular emphasis we'll talk about. It arises out of the poverty of Argentina, which he very much experienced. Arises out of the dirty war. You know, arises out of uh, the Jesuit rhetoric, uh, you know, at Medellin and, and, and uh, Pedro Rupe. That arises out of, you know, Santissimo. Sanos, right, and, and, and that he has totally embraced it, arises out of Gaudium and Spes, the pastoral constitution of the church. And Francis, because of his background, because of Jesus' love for the poor, right, because of this compassionate, right, wanting to imitate his Lord in compassion, Pope Francis is going to be a person uh, who embraces what's called the preferential option for the poor. Um, this is not socialism. It's not liberation theology, as we'll see. It is basically keep your eye fixed on the poor with the broad definition of the poor. Not just the temporally poor, though the temporally poor. Not just the sick, though the sick, right? Also the spiritually poor, also the alienated, etc. So this preferential option for the poor, broadest definition of the poor that you can get. The fourth, uh, and that's going to be his emphasis, right? Finally, the means. What is the means that he is going to use? Enculturation. Going, out, going in somebody else's door to bring them out our door. This is his rationale. And of course, as we'll see in a moment, this has a huge tradition in the Society of Jesus. I don't have to tell you 1 Corinthians 9.19 and following, which I will quote in detail from St. Paul, right? Um, very much, if you saw that movie, The Mission, the Jesuit reductions in, in Paraguay and, 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 and uh, Brazil, right? All these things, very, very influential, right? Latin America, right? Very influential uh, in, the life, uh, in the life of uh, Pope Francis. And he's going to push that enculturation to the edge, 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 because that's who he is. He's going to push it to the edge in the topics he chooses, the content he chooses to deal with, and of course, the way in which he chooses to deal with that content, issuing an invitation as often as he can, determinative of the form of the encyclical. All right, let's get to it. Let's get to that center circle. That is to say that, that uh, foundational circle, which I'm going to call the spiritual experience and the spiritual exercises. Um, the, by the way, 
And the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius Loyola, this very profound 30-day uh, silent retreat, that's grounded in the work uh, uh, the spiritual exercises that uh, St. Ignatius wrote after his experiences at Montserrat. And uh, uh, he really writes this uh, not as a book to read, but as a book for spiritual directors to use on a real 30-day retreat. <coughs> the presupposition <coughs> excuse me, of that work is that we're leading the exercitant into an experience of Christ in the silence. But Pope Francis does not need to be led, well, he does need to be led into a, a deeper experience of Christ, but he has already had a very profound and formative experience of Christ at the age of 17. I would say almost a mystical experience, which St. Ignatius Loyola would call consolation, spiritual consolation without previous cause. That means literally a bolt out of the mystical blue that just nails you straight on. Like St. Paul, you know, boom. Uh, who are you, sir? Uh, I am Christ and you are persecuting me. Got it. Now that's the kind of experience, right, that we're talking about. So here is Pope uh, Jorge Borgoglio, not Pope Francis. Here is Jorge Bor Borgoglio. He's 17 years old. He's just probably done some kind of a significant confession. You know, obviously he, he had a, uh, an interesting background, you know, teaching in tech, uh, technology, uh, working in a, a, a technological area in chemistry, uh, actually being a bouncer for a while in a bar, you know. At 17, he comes into this confessional, and after he leaves the confessional, he has this profound mystical experience of Jesus, the gentle offerer of mercy. Jesus, the person of Jesus, filled with love and compassion for him. And he is literally completely transfixed by this experience. And as he's experiencing this, what happens is he, he, he feels the mercy of God the mercy of Jesus who's present to him, literally healing him and transforming him. The experience of mercy, the, the healing power of mercy, is so profound in that moment that he makes up his mind, literally at 17 years old, I, I gotta be a priest. And I, I think I'll go to these Jesuits. And so he, he basically decides on his vocation, literally Johnny on the spot. Later on, and now you, you can't imagine, you know, I mean, th these kinds of experiences are, are rivetingly, you know, deep. I mean, this doesn't hit the shallow part of the bone. It gets to the deep, deep wells of, of the, the unconscious mind and it's the spirit and the soul at its depth. Now, the main thing is that when he has this experience, he chooses to go. He later on reads the homily of Venerable Bede, Josephine talked about yesterday. And, <clears throat> he, he, you know, it's on the, the feast day of, of St. Matthew. 
And of course, he sees that Latin phrase, right? Miserando atque, um, and, and just, uh, uh, um, um, you know, eligendo, right? You know, um, uh, shown mercy and called, basically, or chosen. Eligendo, right? Elect, uh, chosen. So, you know, he's shown mercy and, and, and chosen. And he reads those words and he goes, that's me. I was shown mercy. I was healed. That's me. And, and I was chosen right then and there. I, you know, I knew I was supposed to go on and be a priest and a, and a Jesuit. That's me. And of course, no wonder he chooses it for his motto on his coat of arms. Because right, as a bishop and later as the pope, he can't get away from it. It was such a formative experience. Now, uh, let me just go deeper, because now Jorge enters the Society of Jesus, enters the novitiate. And as many of you know, during the novitiate of the Society of Jesus, uh, all novices uh, move and enter into the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius. When the novice minister believes that they're ready, he takes the, the novices through the spiritual exercises. Well, you can imagine what this person who's had this spiritual experience entering into the spiritual exercises, which is designed to allow the Lord to speak to the heart of the exorcitant and the silence through the spiritual exercises, as he did to St. Ignatius Loyola, right? That Francis is having these little kind of moments of consolation during his own retreat. It's based on this foundational uh, spiritual consolation without previous cause, right? You can see what's going to happen as he begins to hit the third week of the exercises, which is the passion of Jesus Christ. I mean, I can tell you this right now you are going to fall more radically in love with Jesus than you had ever thought possible. Because as you move through each part of the passion, right? I mean, literally, Satan just extends it out, you know, so that you're contemplating each part of that passion. You fall in love with the one who gratuitously died for you out of love. You can't help it. You are coming, you'll be coming more and more bonded to the Lord of love, not just in an external experience of the exercises or contemplation. It is built on the foundation of the interior experience caused by Jesus himself. Jesus is the one who touches the heart. And of course, the love of, 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 of Francis for the Lord grows deeper and deeper. And as it grows deeper and deeper, he cannot help himself. The very desired effect that Ignatius Loyola wanted occurs. And what is the desired effect? I want to imitate him. I want to be just like him. I want to do things the way he does it. We're not talking about Christocentrism as an abstraction here. We're talking about Christocentrism of the personal heart. We're talking about, I so identify with you because of your love for me, which incites my love for you. 
I want to be like you. I want to do everything just like you would want to. I want to just reach out to the people you want to reach out to. What do you want me to do, Lord? And of course, right, you know, Ignatius has got these two meditations kind of surrounding, right, the third week. The first one's the kingdom meditation before the third week. The call of the king. Who is the king? Okay, he says, first consider an earthly king. But then... Christ the King, consider the ways he wants to do it. Then, right, we've got the two standards meditation, which comes after. And in the two standards meditation, right, there are two leaders on two different hills. A standard is a flag, so the, underneath which the, the leader is standing, right? So it's like, the, and one leader is the devil, and he's got his standard, his flag, and the other leader is Jesus, and he's got his standard and his flag, right? And now this is the young Jorge Borgoglio, right? But he's, he's in love with Christ. His heart is burning. Jesus is, you know, leading him through the spirit, right? And of course, he's consider how the devil works and what his call is. His call, first and foremost, is to riches. Aggrandize yourself. Enrichen yourself, right? <clears throat> And then his call is to honors, right? That is to say, aggrandize yourself in the eyes of others. And the third call is to pride. Think yourself better than others. Think yourself more worthy than others. Come on, you are a little Messiah, aren't you? And of course, there's the call, right, of the devil. And of course, and Jesus is on the other hill with the smaller army. And his call is, come and work with me. Come into the light. And I will give you the light. I'll give you the Holy Spirit. And above all, I will give you love and compassion. But here is the method that I will use. Instead of riches, I'm calling you to poverty. That's the best way of making sure that you are not enriching yourself. That's the way to love and to light and to lead to love and light. And here's the other thing. You, I'm calling you also to simplicity instead of honors. That's the way to make sure that you don't aggrandize yourself. And finally, I'm calling you to humility instead of to pride so that you will always remember that it is I, it is the Lord who, who is the Messiah, not, not me, not you, uh, not, not uh, you uh, who is the Messiah, right? And of course, I call you to humility so that you recognize that uh, it's not about being better. It's about how much service we can do for the light in humility. St. Paul recognizes it so profoundly. But what's my point? My point is, here's the young Jorge Borgoglio. He's going through the novitiate. He's reading about these two standards. If he's anything like me, he's going to go... You know, I don't particularly like poverty. I certainly don't particularly like simplicity. And I certainly don't like particularly like humility. But Lord, if that's what you're doing, if that's where you are, if that's your light, I'm going to learn to love your light because I love you. That's what Ignatius wants. Yeah, Ignatius figured he's probably got a bunch of guys that he's calling that probably have some intelligence, some gifts and talents, and they're likely to have a little bit of the riches and the honors and the pride. And what he's going to do is he's going to say, for the love of Christ, stop it. 
and put on a different kind of armor. And I can see this guy, Jorge Borgoli, by the way, very talented guy. This guy does not lack IQ points. There's something very analytical about him, something deeply intuitive about him, something very, very, you know, capable of broad conversation, right? And there's, he's a talented guy. And you can see, you know, Ignatius has got him in the spiritual exercise. He's standing under the standard of Jesus Christ. And what happens? He then moves into, well, I'm not going to go through the rest of these slides because I'm running. Okay, I, I, gotta, I got to, okay, I got, got the point. So the main, thing, the main thing, though, is you can see how this man is formed. He's going to be what? He's going to be exceedingly Christocentric, but not as an abstraction, as in the heart. You can see he's going to be exceedingly personalistic. Because Christ cares about individuals much more than theories, much more than abstractions. He's caring about the individuals that he's meeting, fully attending to those individuals. Pope Francis, <clears throat> I should say, young Jorge Borgoglio is going to imitate him. And of course, when he finally gets to the final exercise, the spiritual exercise, the contemplation to attain divine love, he's hooked. He's going to be this heartfelt, Christocentric imitation of Christ in humility and poverty and simplicity. He's going to be under Christ's standard, and he is going to base the rest of his contemplative life on that. That's what you're dealing with here. He's a, he's a different kind of animal from Pope Benedict and Pope uh, and St. John Paul. I shouldn't say animal, but he's a different uh, genus. Um, and, and so we got to uh, uh, maybe even sui generis. But anyway, the main thing is that's what you've got. Let's go to the second uh, uh, area, uh, the end, the modus. Let me do this uh, somewhat quickly, simply because of the constraints of time. The magis, as I said, means the even more, the greatest universal need. This is <clears throat> what right, St. Ignatius is exhorting the Jesuits to. Not just the Jesuit novice, but it's a right, every Jesuit does an eight-day retreat every year throughout um, his, um, his life. And so this, this eight-day retreat is kind of a resurgence toward the Majus. What are the three questions that St. Ignatius exhorts uh, every Jesuit to ask? And not just ask once in his life, but uh, all the time in his life. Number one, what is the greatest universal need? What is it? Outline it. Might be three or four or five different things, but what do you think is the greatest universal need for the church, for Jesus Christ, the one you love? For the kingdom of God that was brought to us by Jesus and will end in completeness with the Father in heaven. What do you think is the greatest need for that church and that kingdom and for Jesus himself? Number two, can you in some way meet one or more of those needs or at least partially meet one or more of those needs. So uh, that's the second question. And uh, Jorge Bergoglio is going to be asking himself this throughout his papacy, not just his Jesuit life. Number three question, is anyone else doing it? Is anyone else doing it? If so, <clears throat> are they doing it well enough for you to let them leave, leave it alone? You let them do their thing. Or do you have to fill in some gaps? 
Do you have to complement it? Do you have to do something to make this thing go over the top, right? To get over the, 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 the final, you know, one yard line, right? Into the goal line, uh, into, into the goal area. So the, the key thing for, for uh, Ignatius then is you ask yourself these three questions and you can see how uh, Pope Francis gets the particular agendas that he's getting. His interpretation of the greatest universal, oh, by the way, if you answer the first question with XXX uh, is the greatest universal need, number two question, can you do something about it competently? And you say yes. <clears throat> then you say, is anybody else doing it? Uh, or are they doing it well? And you say, no, not really. Uh, you know, uh, people aren't doing it. St. Ignatius' advice is talk to your superior immediately. Get off the old duff and do something. Do, do, do something about it. And that is what's motivating. Now, let's go back to his interpretation of the Magis. What's Pope Francis's greatest, uh, I mean, uh, what's his interpretation of the greatest universal need? Number one, take care of the alienated from the church. He didn't have to read a Pew survey poll to recognize that 1% of our kids are leaving the church. This is between 15 and 35 per year. We have moved from 24%, not just leaving the church, 24% unbelief, ladies and gentlemen, 24% unbelief to 37% unbelief in a matter of 12 years. If this doesn't worry us, I don't know what will. <clears throat> But that is a bad statistic. I think he recognizes that there's many reasons for this. We know one of the reasons, you know, and that's why I started the Majas Institute, right? One of them is, yeah, 49% of the respondents said, yeah, that rational discourse and science have thrown faith out the window. We got to stop that because there's plenty of scientific evidence, plenty of logical evidence for God, but that's a matter of another story. But what does Francis see? Francis sees people who are classically alienated. Alienated maybe <clears throat> because they think we don't know what we're talking about. There's no reason to discourse with us. Alienated because of divorce. And now they're stuck in a situation where they have no option to uh, receive communion in, in the church. They're basically caught in a divorce and remarriage thing. Of their own devices, maybe so, but he sees them as another source of alienation. He sees another source of alienation as this group of what I'm going to call the, the, the uh, environmentally sensitive. And, you know, even though we have one of our great social principles of the Catholic Church, the stewardship over the environment, <clears throat> Francis sees that well, we don't have the reputation yet to invite that crowd into us. Some of the people who think that we have not uh, critiqued uh, capitalism, though I must say, you know, uh, you know that uh, you know under Pope Leo the Thirteenth, uh, Rerum Novarum, you know, capitalism was and private property was given a very, very fair shot in those encyclicals amidst you know the important developments that were made for the labor for the worker uh, in those times of really disastrous, you know, um, and, and terrible. Terrible uh, consequences uh, for um, you know the the workers in in, uh, in the industrial revolution. Now all these things being what what they are, Pope Francis 
He thinks he's got a big set of alienated people out there. And here's the thing that Francis sees. He sees that there is another huge group of young people, a huge group of young people who's alienated because those other groups are alienated. So they go, well, I, I, you know, this group's you know, alienated from the church. Well, I'm alienated too, because out of sympathy for them. Uh, these environment, they're, I'm alienated too, out of sympathy. So there's a huge group of young people who are alienated out of sympathy for the alienated. So it's like doubling and youthifying, if I might put it that way, the effect. So he wants to deal with it. I mean, you may agree or disagree with his view of the Majus, but that's his view of the Majus, and he is going to do everything he can within the bounds of enculturation to bring that group back in, to offer them invitations. Oh, yes, surreptitiously by quoting their scientists or quoting <clears throat> you know, issues of importance to them. Yes, but he's going to do everything that he can to bring those alienated groups in because he knows of this double effect. Furthermore, he's going to have to contend with some internal problems in the church. You know, some people are just meant to deal with internal problems and some people are not. Anybody who has been a Jesuit superior for over 10 years knows how to deal with internal problems. And of course, he does. He does not want to turn, right? The internal problems of the church are causing disedification. And he is exceedingly conscious of edification, building up. And the disedification from scandals, the disedification from the Vatican Bank. I don't have to tell you, there are a lot of people who look at that Vatican Bank situation. I mean, these are my friends. And they go, I just don't, you know... Uh, you know, this Rome deal. I mean, you know, can you believe this stuff? And, you know, I'm sitting there going, well, Pope Francis is trying to take care of some of that, you know. I mean, but I know it's disedifying people. And, and of course, I'll tell you one thing about Pope Francis. Right there like a puppy dog after the Majus, he is going to absolutely go after it, including reform of the Curia. Now, again, we can disagree. Uh, would you reform the Curia the same way he did? Maybe not. But did it need some reform? It did. It needed, you know, some, uh, you know, uh, you know, relooking at some of the ways in which uh, the bureaus were oriented, etc. Just from a formal point of view, skip the personnel issues. From a formal point of view, it needed some reorganization, and he has confronted it, and he will continue to confront it, and he'll do something about it, including renewing the clergy in poverty, simplicity. There's going to be a continuous call for the clergy uh, to to be humble, uh, to be a men of prayer, and 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 uh, for religious to do the same. Okay, ten minutes. Okay, that's the modus in a nutshell. Let me just get to the preferential option for the poor. This is his emphasis. Where does it come from? And then uh, we'll have some time for questions. And the, the key dot um, for the um, uh, preferential option for the poor is, as you know, 1 Corinthians 9.19. There is just no question that Pope Francis internalized it completely. I've become all things for all people, right, says St. Paul. I, I, I've become um, a Jew for those who are Jews. 
I've become somebody who's under the law for somebody who's under the law. I've become somebody who's not under the law, Gentile, for people who are not under the law, Gentiles, right? I've become free for those who are free. I've become weak for those who are weak. I've become all things to all men. I mean, this is the inspiration of St. Paul. And of course, you can see St. Ignatius Loyola. Hmm, sounds right to me. And of course, St. Ignatius takes this and goes full bore, absolutely full tilt with this. Uh, you know, and, and of course, I don't have to tell you about the history of the Jesuits. I mean, look at Matteo Ricci. I mean, here is a guy. I'm not kidding you. He, he, he's going to China, right? So what does he do? He masters three dialects of Chinese fluently. Then he grows his hair into a big pigtail, grows a Fu Manchu mustache, wears a kimono and, and Chinese sandals, and he walks right up to the emperor and says, boy, I can teach you about astronomy and mathematics and things you have never even dreamt about. And he's talking in perfect Chinese, and he goes, you're not Chinese. He says, I know, but I respect you. I want to be like your mandarins. I want to, you know, speak with you. What is Matteo Ricci's intention? None other than to get into the court of China, to tutor the emperor in all these things, so to convert him and convert the whole of China. That's his ambition. That's what he wants to do. By the way, the Christian church has done this. It's not Jesuit property. This is Pope, I mean, this is uh, St. Paul. Uh, this is the whole early years of Christian formation and adaptation to Roman culture. It's, I mean, it's <clears throat> the whole missionary spirit, so much so that in Gaudium et Spes, number 44, we've got the dictate that inculturation, essentially, right? They, they call it the appropriate uh, adaptation of the word of God to the culture is the entire seat of evangelization. It's the beginning part and the context of all evangelization. You gotta go in their door in order for them to come out your door. You make no concessions, Evangel not concessions to doctrine, of course, or concessions to dogma. But if you don't make concessions to things that can be conceded, to go in their door, to show them that you care, to show them that you're in dialogue, to show them you want to listen, it's going to be really hard to make disciples. The best missionaries have known it. Matteo Ricci almost got away with it, by the way. He almost got away with it. He got right to the emperor. He was tutoring the emperor. They sort of caught up with him. But nevertheless, boy, that was a nod. You talk about a big, hairy, audacious goal. You know, a big behag, right, that uh, Jim Collins talks about. I mean, this was it. I mean, and the Jesuit reductions, I mean, in Paraguay and Bolivia. Yeah, let's bring three million, you know, uh, Indians, uh, you know, into these big, huge collective farms with aqueducts where they're building cathedrals and printing presses way before they ever happened in North America. And let's just go ahead and let them compose their music and do all of these different things, right? And we're just going to kind of live in the midst of them, sort of direct the technical aspects of this, but let the Indian culture go the way the Indian culture would go. And they, they accepted Christianity, of course, and I don't know if you ever saw the movie The Mission, but then, of course, the Portuguese and the Spanish government government's got wind that, hey, these things look like they're pretty rich. Uh, let's go over and enslave some Indians. And of course, they did break them up, and, and, uh, but nevertheless, 
What an incredible project. I mean, talk about a big, hairy, audacious goal. Again, it's, it's, it's amazing uh, what these guys are capable of. I, I, I digress. The main thing that I want to get to is Pope Francis has embraced this view, not only of the preferential option for the poor, but he's embraced this view of enculturation. And because it is so embedded into the Jesuit uh, you know, ethos, uh, it's part of him. It's part of, this is why he's constantly reaching out. He's constantly making these comments. And you go, he's getting too close. Now, I might say in some cases he's getting really too close. But I, I'll also say, I know what he's up to. He's trying <clears throat> to get a common point <clears throat> of dialogue where somebody will think that he's listening to them which means that they are invited not only into the dialogue, but invited into the church, particularly if they have in the past been alienated from it. And this is crucial. For, so for, for Pope Francis then, what he, you know, you're, he's gonna do things that we're gonna look at as being really radical. And by the way, there were a lot of people who hated what the Jesuits were doing in the Chinese rights controversy, right? I mean, they absolutely did not like it. They thought we pushed too darn close to the edge. And there's no doubt that when you're, you're trying to get a dialogue going with very disparate communities, uh, you probably can push too far. Now, the danger that Archbishop Chaput talked about uh, yesterday is also really important. Uh, for those of you who, are there is, uh, who weren't there, essentially what he said is you've got to be very careful when you make these comments that you know, are invitatory, right? They're, they're inviting people you know, in, into, the, into the church, right? You're, 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 um, you're, you're making comments that, that um, seem like you're kind of loosening a bit you know, uh, on, on your doctrine, that you, there's a great deal of personal or pastoral consideration uh, for this. So you're, you're making these comments. You have to be very careful that you, you just don't alleviate guilt. And instead of making an invitation, you just get people thinking, well, not so bad after all. I guess I don't need a church. Bye. That is the danger. And so, you know, is, is Pope Francis's strategy walking on a tightrope wire? Yes. Yes, it is. There's dangers on either side. You don't want to fall off, right? But then again, Pope Francis is a G.K. Chesterton kind of guy. I mean, he's the kind of guy that says, look, I've got this steed that's pretty much romantic idealism and another steed that's rationalism. My rationalism steed is almost telling me, just get on me, I'll keep you steady, don't worry about these emotions, ideals, and things of this nature. Kind of lobotomize your heart, you'll be okay. <laughs> then the romantic steed is saying, right on me, you're going to be higher than I. You're going to be just an emotional, idealistic ideologue. Go with me. Don't worry about reason, you know, all those prudential judgments. You know, just let it go and, and just get high on the emotion. But of course, as Chesterton suggests, no, actually, even though you think the steeds will rip you apart, your better bet is to have a, one foot in one stirrup and another foot on the stirrup of the other horse and ride between them because they won't tear you apart. Instead, they will keep you galloping. And the point I think that is really important, this is the risk 
that Pope Francis is willing to take. He is a risk taker. There is no risk averse bone in his body. Why? Because he is a man of the Majas. What does this mean? This means that we have to very much kind of interpret benevolently, but interpret what he is saying so that we make sure that people don't get misimpressions, that they don't think that divorce and remarriage is suddenly being challenged um, in, in the church, that they don't think that Pope Francis is challenging the indissolubility of marriage, that Pope Francis is in love with atheist interpreters of environmental movement, that Pope Francis hates all capitalism, and really he's just a Marxist or a socialist in disguise. He has made overt attempts to distance himself from liberation theology and from Marxism on every score. But he does have a critique of capitalism extending into the abuses that capitalism has had in the history of Latin America and in the history of the West during the Industrial Revolution. And of course, even though he, I don't think, has a good experience of American capitalism, and there's a very good experience of American capitalism, I think that needs to be a corrective. But we can do this. We can be good interpreters. Hermeneutic, interpretation, right? We can be really good interpreters of the content and the form of the encyclicals of Pope Francis so that we are not undermining his message, but we're not undermining the doctrine of the church. We're not undermining the unity of the church, but rather trying to give what St. Ignatius Loyola called the better interpretation a better interpretation which is sophisticated, a better interpretation which respects the majus and the risk, but at the same time points to the dangers without saying that they are overwhelming dangers. To, as it were, we don't have to enter into the risk in the same way that Pope Francis does, but I think we have to at least point to the dangers, but at least say, you know, is it worth it uh, to, 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 th to thread the needle? And maybe it's not worth it uh, to thread the needle. But at the end of the day, right, I do think uh, we can do four things that will help us to understand Pope Francis. Number one, I think we have to understand he's got a very different style of encyclical writing than previous popes. Number two, I think we have to understand uh, his form, that fourfold form, right, of edification, of, of uh, uh, challenge, of, of invitation and call, very different. Number three, I think we have to understand where he's coming from in terms of his content, the selection of issues, the way he addresses the issues, in terms of the spiritual exercises and the spiritual experience of Jesus loving him, that Christocentrism and that personalism. Secondly, I think we need to understand the modest, the even more, the take the risk, the go to the edge. I think we have to understand, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the uh, preferential option for the poor, which is such a part of his emphasis in the compassion that he holds toward the, the poor in the largest uh, definition of the word. And of course, uh, the, the enculturation, which uh, Gaudium et Spes says is the foundation stone for all evangelization. Fourth, I think we have to legitimately point to the dangers uh, that are there in pushing everything to the edge. 
I think we need to point to the fact that maybe we wouldn't have chosen this particular person or critique capitalism in that particular way. You can do that, you know. It's a prudential judgment. We have the right to disagree. But the point is to do it benevolently, to do it in a fashion that doesn't undermine his challenge or his invitation. That means we're on the tight rope, too. The proverbial tightrope, as, as interpreters, faithful uh, interpreters of uh, you know the teaching of this very very different pope, Pope Francis. Uh, thank you so very very much. Faith and Reason podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.